Episode 38 of War in the Book of Mormon, Part 7.1, Moroniha and the Transition in Command. The previous episode ended the discussion on the most detailed war in the Book of Mormon record, the Amalekiahite War, in about 61 BC or the 31st year of the reign of the judges. The end of the Amalekiahite War did not mean an end to wars between the Nephites and the Lamanites, but what did happen was a change in the type and nature of conflict between the two peoples. At the beginning of Part 7 in our podcast series, the Lamanites were an independent nation ruled by Nephite dissenters. As things progressed, they changed to being converted by Nephite missionaries and prophets, and their collective culture became closer to the culture of Jesus Christ. Under this influence, they returned their greatest military gains and became a people of peace. The enemy of the Nephites then became the Gadianton robbers. All of this is skillfully foreshadowed in the first chapter of the Book of Helaman, something that we will discuss in detail two episodes from now. This part of the podcast series has particularly poignant lessons for each of us today that are more than simply spiritual as we now live in an era of conflict where the opponent has changed from a nation-state with conventional military organizations and tactics to a non-state entity with robber-like organizations and tactics. The transition in opponent expressed in the books of Helaman and 3rd Nephi in the Book of Mormon presents significant lessons for how nations and peoples can successfully fight secret societies and non-state actors in the 21st century. In this part, we will discuss the transformation from Lamanites, led by Nephite dissenters, and their descendants, to the rise of Gadianton's band of robbers, as they try to subvert first the Nephite nation, and then succeed in subverting and controlling much of the Lamanite nation. This section also features the starkest contrast in unity and disunity, following the common thread of Mormon's unity story the successful unified defense of Nephites and Lamanites against the Gadianton bands followed within six years the complete dissolution of the Nephite state into a tribal society. This part includes the signs of the birth of Christ and his death and immediately precedes the visit of the Savior to the American continent. Mormon presents a story about the nature of man, through the transition from orderly civilization to tribal paganism within only a few years of nearly complete unity. He also teaches about the importance of unity and the dangers of internal divisions, as well as a greater appreciation for the workings of Satan in fighting the children of God. Satan does not give up, and he will seek to drive wedges between people and use whatever vehicle presents itself. We will begin this part at about 53 BC, or the 39th year of the reign of the judges, and it will go all the way to about 34 AD, or four years after the dissolution of the Nephite state in the 121st year of the reign of the judges. I want to inform you that all opinions and suppositions expressed in what follows are entirely mine, and in no way reflect the positions, opinions, or policies of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Moroniha, the enigmatic yet significant commander. B. 
Before we begin with battles and wars, I want to discuss the new commander and what Mormon might be showing or teaching us through how he does or doesn't use this character. That new commander is Moroniha or Moroniha. I grew up pronouncing his name Moroniha, and only after having access to the Book of Mormon audio version as provided by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints did I appreciate the other pronunciation of Moroniha. I will try to use that pronunciation as I believe it to be the official version, but I want to apologize now for any reversions to the pronunciation of my earlier life. In many ways, Moroniha serves as a support for my point that the Book of Mormon is not written as a history, but as a metaphor for how to live our lives in order that we may stand clean and clear before the judgment bar of Christ. I refer you to Mormon's thesis as recorded in Mormon chapter 3, verses 20 to 22. I will explain why Moroniha is such a good example. 1. Moroni, the man for whom we have the greatest detail of personality and activities, commanded the Nephite armies for about 16 years, and his son, Moroniha, about whom we have almost nothing in terms of personality and just basics in terms of activities, commanded the Nephite armies for more than 30 years. Yet, Moroni received significantly more emphasis in the narrative of the book than his son. For both the scholar and the skeptic, the same question is essential. Why? 2. Moroniha is never defined in the same detail as his father, and as such, the reader is left with a lot of pieces to fill in. Despite the lack of information and detail, Moroniha served as commander at the critical transition time in Nephite history. For example, he was responsible for a military that fought the last campaigns against the Lamanites, and he also began the battles with the Gadianton robbers. Under his command, the Nephites suffered their most significant battlefield losses and the loss of almost all of their land. Though he was able to lead a partial reconquest, the Nephites did not ever regain all of their lost territory through military success. 3. Moroniha followed his father's military strategies, yet he lost. But his adjustments allowed for ultimate victory and the regaining of the status quo antebellum. All these brief statements of his career place Moroniha as one of the chief military leaders in Nephite history. Given the length of his service, the volume of his combat experience, and the complexity of the political environment in which he served, he ranks as maybe one of the three greatest generals in the Nephite Chronicle, Mormon and Moroni being the other two, yet he is the least developed and explained of the three. This episode briefly probes questions raised by my assertion of Moroniha's importance in the Book of Mormon record and seeks to better explain this person and why Mormon provides so little insight into his character and combat leadership. Who was Moroniha? First, we know that Moroniha was the son of Moroni. The first reference to him is in Alma chapter 63, verse 43, when we are told, quote, and Moroni yielded up the command of his armies into the hands of his son, whose name was Moroniha, and he retired to his own house that he might spend the remainder of his days in peace. Close quote. This happened in the 31st year of the reign of the judges. 
readers of the Book of Mormon know nothing of Moroniah prior to this statement. From this statement, some of the following can be supposed. First, Moroniah was a young commander when he took over. I supposed in episode 19, or part 4.4, when we discussed the tremendous battle of the wilderness, that Moroni was about 20 or 21 when that battle took place. That was a little off. We are told in Alma chapter 43, verse 17, that Moroni took command at 25 years old, and it may have meant that he did so immediately preceding the battle outside of Jershon in the 18th year of the reign of the judges. If so, then he would have been about 38 or so when he handed over the command of the armies to his son. It is possible that Moroni might have taken command immediately following the tremendous battle of the wilderness in the 15th year of the reign of the judges, making him about 41 or maybe 42 as he changed command. Assuming that Moroni became a father at about age 20, then Moroniah would have been anywhere from 18 to 22 when he took command of the Nephite armies, younger than his father, though older than Mormon, who took command at age 15. Second, based on the above numbers, it is possible that Moroniah was already born and a young boy when his father took command. Let's assume that Moroni took command just after the tremendous battle of the wilderness and that Moroniah was five years old when he did so, giving his birth year sometime in the tenth year of the reign of the judges. If this were so, then Moroniah would have seen the growth of the Nephite war machine created by his father. He would have been nine when his father raised the title of liberty, fourteen when Morianton and his people dissented, fifteen when Amalickiah invaded along the eastern seashore, 15 to 18 during the first Kingmen dissension, and 19 to 20 during the second Kingmen dissension. Third, if these estimates are accurate, then Moroniah would have seen the Amalickiahite war as an adolescent and young adult. It is possible and maybe even probable that Moroniah commanded as a subordinate to either his father or some other Nephite general. It is unlikely that Moroniah would receive total command of all the Nephite armies without having demonstrated himself in battle previously. If he served in the Eastern Theater during the war, which seems likely, he would have seen the battles of Mulek, Gid, Nephihah, and Moroni. He may have been one of the commanders to lead the scaling of the walls at Nephihah, if I were writing a historical fiction about him, I would have him as a subordinate commander that Moroni left to hold Mulek during the Third Battle of Mulek and as a key leader in the Second Kingmen Dissension Campaign. That is all my personal imagination, though. This is speculation, but it is important to see the potential experiences as this certainly shaped Moroniha's policies as the chief captain. Fourth, Moroni's home was Zarahemla, and Moroniah was probably born there as well. Even though this was probably the case, one could suppose that he was not in Zarahemla when the kingmen made their uprisings, as letters between father and son would have provided a warning that clearly Moroni did not have. Moroniah's formative experiences certainly came during the Amalekite War, and he must have been, at a minimum, a witness of the battles and was probably a leader and commander in some, several, and possibly many of the battles. 
He certainly saw his father in action and probably watched the weight of decisions and seriousness with which his father battled for what he believed to be right, arming soldiers, fortifying cities in strategic areas, clearing potential problem groups out of dangerous areas, settling new cities, and doing all of these things in times of peace. Moronaiha witnessed the importance of planning and preparation before crisis rather than waiting for the crisis to appear and then reacting. What philosophy did Moronaiha bring to his captaincy? Moronaiha brought to his position of leadership a philosophy adopted from his father, defend the frontier of the Nephite state. Moroni had created border cities and garrisons, cleared large areas of the border, and established fortifications to both defend against attack and also to direct attacks toward better defended areas. Moroniha followed this same policy, and the second major Lamanite campaign against him was a reflection of his adherence to the policies of his father. The Lamanite captain avoided the border and attacked directly to Zarahemla. This campaign is addressed in episode 40, or part 7.3, in detail, but it is instructive of the policy. Moroniha had forces to react to the attack because he had them on the border and not in the center. The Challenges of Command Moroniha served as Nephite commander from the 31st year of the reign of the judges to somewhere about the 62nd year of the reign of the judges or at least that was the last mention of him as the commander, and the focus of the Book of Mormon story shifted from war to missionary service. In these 30 or more years of service, he fought successfully against several invasions, and then he had to combat a successful invasion that forced the retreat from all Nephite lands but the land bountiful in the 58th and 59th years of the reign of the judges. In a simple statement, Moroniha, or his subordinates, lost something in the neighborhood of 20 to 30 cities and probably at least 30 or more battles and engagements. This was an enormous collapse of Nephite military power. It is unclear why this collapse happened, though it is probable that dissension played some significant role, as it seemed to be the recurrent fault line in Nephite society. Some sections of the society may simply have opted out of the Nephite polity, and the Lamanite armies came sweeping through. Moroniha was able to retake half of the Nephite lands from the 60th to the 62nd years of the reign of the judges. He was not able to regain the rest of the lands through military action. Those lands were returned through missionary work. It is possible that Moroniha was no longer in command when the lands were returned, as he simply disappears from the Book of Mormon story. Conclusion Moroniha was a man who commanded the total Nephite military establishment longer than any other Nephite in the pre-Christ era. He commanded in more battles, possibly as many as 42, and maybe more campaigns, possibly as many as nine, over three wars, than any other military commander. Yet in the end, he commanded in the largest loss of Nephite land short of Mormon. Mormon gives no stated insight into the reasons for this collapse, though, as we will discuss, Mormon does show us some important points. Moroniha was not the protagonist 
of this third great sermon for Mormon, I would argue that the protagonist is a principle, unity, and not a person. We will see unity in a variety of forms under a variety of commanders, governors, prophets, and missionaries. Obviously, we will also see disunity from a variety of sources, but the primary antagonist in this sermon is the Gadianton robber, whether as a person or as a collective. Moronihah battled this antagonist in its nascent form and then in its less organized and smaller forms. The Lamanites were still the primary bad guys as Moronihah commanded the Nephite armies, with Gadianton robbers acting as a corrosive, eating away at the Nephite state and society. As Moronihah faded from the record, so too did the Lamanites as the bad guys, and Gadianton robbers became elevated as corrupt Nephite or Lamanite leaders. The next episode discusses the Gadianton robbers, or more broadly, secret combinations, in some detail, as they are discussed in the books of Helaman, 3rd Nephi, and Ether in the Book of Mormon. I will do this to help establish the complexity of the terms Gadianton robbers or secret combinations. They are never simply referring to a single type of person or group. Then we will return to the discussion of wars, campaigns, and battles. I invite you to reach out and ask questions and send comments to me on Facebook at War in the Book of Mormon or at War in the Book of Mormon at gmail.com. All one word, War in the Book of Mormon at gmail.com. Until next time.